0: We're in Romans 11. If you want to turn there, uh, let me just give you, while you're turning there, give, me a little, give you a little preview of some of the questions we're going to deal with. Uh, the first question actually comes right out of verse 1. We'll read it in a moment, but Paul basically asks, is God then going to cast away his people? And the, the people are the people of Israel, the Jewish people. And the question is, has God cast them away? Are, are they rejected? Does does God still have a, a pleasant future for Israel in some national sense? That's, that's the question. And, and, and in light of anti-Semitism, this is really important. In, in, in light of the persecution of, of the Jewish people throughout history, this is a really important question for us to answer. And in, in, in really, in light of some of the nutty stuff that you hear said even today... Uh, sometimes in the name of Jesus, sometimes, trying to, sometimes even trying to use the Bible to justify it, it's really important to know God's future plan for Israel. But it also has implications in light of God's promises for us because uh, you think about it, if God, if God could cast off Israel, th- then how do we know that he won't just cast me off? So so it speaks a lot to us. There's an element uh, there where his faithfulness to Israel is, serves as an encouragement to us in regard to his faithfulness to us. Because if he's going to be faithful to Israel, then we can also rest assured he'll be faithful to us. And so uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that. We're also going to learn there's a lesson here about running with endurance. About about living with a sense of endurance and a sense of patience in the challenges that we face. So, So we're going to pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 11. And Paul writes this. He says, I say then, has God rejected his people? And, and my, first, my first thought when I read that is, what is meant by reject? There, there's no question that he's referring to the Jews here when he references his people. Israel, Israel is in question here. However, what does he mean when he uses the word reject? And I think the, the context is this. He, you know, he's, are, the, are the Jewish people utterly lost? Is it over for the Jewish people? And if you're a Jew and you have these promises and you think that God is going to take care of you, you think that God is with you, he's going to do wonderful things in your future, is all of that over with? Is God just done with the Jewish people? And we see in Romans 9 through Romans 10 how all of these events have been prophesied that the Messiah would come and that... He would not be received by many of Israel and that he would end up going to the Gentiles and they would receive him. So the next, next natural question is, so what's up with Israel then? Is it over for them? And, and, and the truth is, Paul, Paul's answer is actually even implied in the question because he he, he doesn't say has God cast away Israel? He doesn't say, has God rejected Israel? He says, the question he phrases, the way he phrases the question is, has God cast away his people? And so the answer is is implied right in the question, isn't it? The Israelites are his people. Do you you think he'd cast away Israel? His people that that he chose, that he called, that that he brought up out of Egypt to to whom he made all these promises. Because it was all God. Israel did not choose God. God chose Israel. And and so Paul answers his own question in verse 1. He says, I say then, has God rejected his people? God forbid. That's what it says in the modern English version. And some translations may say it a little differently. Uh, it may say something like, certainly not. That's actually technically closer uh, because the original Greek doesn't really say, God forbid. Uh, but but the phrase that's used is just a really strong way of saying no in the Greek. And and so the, translator, the translators have sort of tried to help us understand the, the strength of the no. Uh, so so it's, it's like Paul saying, no way. No, 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 no. You know, it's an absolute denial of that. It's a very emphatic strong denial no way has god cast away his people and then what paul does is he gives us an example as as proof of this so he's like let, let me give you a piece of evidence that god has not cast away israel verse 1 we'll read the whole verse now it says i say then has god rejected his people god forbid for I also am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul is saying God cannot have cast off his people because I'm an Israelite myself. He, he, I mean, he wasn't a convert to Judaism, right? I mean, he was a Jew. He was a blood of Abraham, tribe of Benjamin, Israelite. That's who he, who he was. And so, so he's saying, hello, has God cast away his people? Can't be true because I am one of his people and so you know to anyone who thinks that God has cast off Israel that he that he's done with them the the question i have to ask them is do you then do you then love paul but hate jews because there are some people in the world like that. There are, I'm sure there aren't any, any of those people in this room, but there are some people in the world that are very anti-Semitic. They're very much against the Jewish people, and they try to use Jesus as a reason for this. Even saying, well, they crucified Jesus or whatever. And, I, and I'm like, are, are, are you aware that Jesus is a Jew? Are you aware of that? He's Yeshua, the, Mesh, the Messiah. Are you aware of this? Jesus is Jewish Paul is Jewish. Are, are you aware that the books that you're reading to try to establish a justification for your hatred of the Jewish people, they were all written by Jews? And, and listen, it was not only Jesus and it was not only Paul, but all of the first believers of, uh, of the church were, were Jewish. Almost all of those that believed in Jesus were Jewish. If you read the book of Acts and, and you pay attention to the Jewish-Gentile issues, which I highly recommend... Um, then you start to notice something. In the book of Acts, about 3,000 people got saved at the very first preaching of the gospel on the day of Pentecost. And, And do you know who those people were? They were Jews. That's who they were. If God has cast off His people, how is it that the first huge reception of the gospel message was amongst Jews? And it wasn't just for that one single event. For years, in the in the early church the gospel initially went out almost entirely to only jewish people and the the only gentiles who seemed to receive the gospel early on were gentiles who had been jewish Converts, So they were Gentiles that were living underneath the law. They had converted to Ju- Judaism. And those are the ones who responded to the gospel. And if, if you read the book of Acts, there, there is no significant group of Gentile believers that aren't following Jewish beliefs and customs until you get to chapter 10. And, and in Acts chapter 10, we have the story of Peter and C- Cornelius. And really, even with Cornel- Cornelius, it says that he was a God-fearing man, which means that that he, he uh, was... Uh, It was the next step would be embracing Judaism. But Peter, in Acts chapter 10, he's at at Simon the the, the Tanner's house and and he's up on the roof and and God shows him a a vision, if you remember the story, a vision of a blanket descending uh, from uh, out of heaven and and on this blanket, uh, there are all these different animals and including unclean animals and God speaks to Peter and, and says, Peter, get up, kill and eat. And Peter's response is, Lord, far be it from me. I've never eaten anything unclean, and I see a pig on there, I'm not gonna do it. That's kind of what his response was. And this vision in conversation with God happens three different times. And and as Peter is pondering this vision, some visitors come to the door and, and, and they're like, We've come for we've come for Peter. And it, it turns out that these visitors are coming from Cornelius, and he's this Gentile man who says, I want to know more about God, and God gave me a vision that said I should call for Peter. Now, the problem is, Cornelius is a Gentile. Peter just had this vision, and he's told by God, go and visit this man, Cornelius. So Peter goes and visits Cornelius and shares the gospel, which uh, the reason I say the problem is he was a Gentile is because Jewish people uh, they, they, they really weren't supposed to, to go into the home of a Gentile person. Uh, it was considered and uh, it would make you unclean. It was, it was not a good thing to do. But Peter goes because of this vision, because of this message from God. And he, he visits Cornelius and he shares the gospel with him and his household. And even while he's speaking, the Holy Spirit falls upon them in, in a powerful way in order to demonstrate that these Gentiles can be saved. Now think about this in the context of the book of Acts for a second. The apostles and all of the Christians who were Jewish, almost all of them were Jewish at this point in time. They were messianic, meaning they had received Christ. They believed in Jesus. And they're wondering, can Gentiles really be saved without becoming Jews, without converting to Judaism? Because that's how the early church was. It was so Jewish, in fact. That that they weren't even sure what to do with these Gentile people when the Holy Spirit fell on them. They're like, I don't know how to handle this. I don't know what to think about this. Let me read to you what was said in Acts ten forty five about this entire scenario. It, it says this: All the believers of the circumcision, so they're they're Jewish. That's what the circumcision is. All the believers of the circumcision had come, who had come with Peter, were astonished. So the Holy Spirit falls. These Jewish people are listening to Peter preach. The Holy Spirit falls, and, and they are they uh, they literally filled with the Spirit. They begin to speak in other tongues. It's this is powerful moment, uh, and, and and they're astonished because he, and he, this is what blew them away. The gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. So the other thing, and whoa, Gentiles can get saved without becoming Jewish. And so for for those who are thinking God has cast off Israel and the Jews my question is then when did that happen? Because because it certainly had not happened during the first century of the church. It certainly had not happened in the in the day in the what has been reported in the book of Acts. There is no indication anywhere in the Bible that God ever cast off the Jews and said, I'm done with them. There's no hope for them. If you're going to say that the Jewish rejection of Messiah means that they are completely cast off, then how is it that through the first 10 chapters of the book of Acts, they're not even thinking about Gentiles for the most part because it is so Jewish? That just wouldn't make any sense. And this goes on, this pattern of of mostly Jews responding goes on literally for years. I mean, Peter. He was the apostle to the Jews. And then Paul, who was saved later, years later, and sent by God years later, he's the apostle to the Gentiles. So the gospel, we see this pattern. In fact, Acts 1.8, we read the, the verse, Acts 1.8. It really serves as an outline of the spread of the gospel. It, it talks about going out. uh, to to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And if you you read the book of Acts as though you were tracing the spread of the gospel, you'll see how it goes from Jewish to Gentile over a period of time and how God, he sort of had to train the early church about how open the gospel message really is. And, and, you know, sometimes he, he has to train us, doesn't he? Anybody here ever been trained by God? Let me see. Yeah. Sometimes he has to train us about how open God's love and and his message of grace is for everyone. Because, you know what? Let, let's be real. We're a lot like the Israelites because we can get a little proud. We can get a little exclusive sometimes. You know what I'm talking about? You know, I don't need to worry about that person over there. We see somebody saying, can, God can save them? Are you kidding me? Really? Are you sure? no. God has not cast off His people. And, and Paul's argument, as I said, is, I, I'm a Jew. Hello? If He's cast away the Jews, then why am I here? How, how am I a Christian? Well, let's look at verse 2. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. So this is the foreknowing of God. The, and basically, the, in, the, in light of the argument, what Paul is saying here, he's saying God knew Israel... And because he knew Israel, he knew all of, the, of Israel's future issues. Now, this is a great application for us, too. That when God, uh, when he saved you, he didn't save you, you know, and then later on when you do something really dumb and you sin, he's not like, whoa, I never saw that coming. You know, he's not shocked by that. But God knew Israel and he knew all of Israel's future issues even before he called them. Yet, in, in spite of that, he still promised them great things in the future. So, so those promises then are not undone by, by, by their the rejection, this temporary rejection of, Jews, of Jesus because God knew for the, from the beginning all the issues that they would have. And so, and, and you know, this really speaks greatly to God's love and mercy and long-suffering attitude towards people, towards Israel, uh, uh, but but also towards me as well. I'm really grateful for that. Can I get an amen? You know, Pete, Peter asked Jesus. He said, "How often should I forgive people when they sin against me?" And Peter, you know, he tries to get real big and tries to impress Jesus because the teachers of his days of his day said they said, well, you have to forgive three times. If somebody says against you, you got to forgive three times. And Peter, he's like, I, I just, you know, the, my, I'm just how I see it. Because just judging from Peter's personality, Peter's trying to impress Jesus. He's like, how many times should I forgive somebody, Jesus? Seven times? How's that? Hey, you're looking back at the disciples. Hey, did you hear that? I said seven times. You know, this is how I picture it in my mind. And then, and then Peter, you know, is standing there trying to, thinking that Jesus is going to say, whoa, Peter, that's amazing. I can't believe that you figured that out. But Jesus says, no, Peter, not seven times, but 70 times seven. He said 490 times and then you can hold a grudge. No, that's not what he said. That's not what he meant. What what he meant was it, it was an exaggeration to indicate that you don't try to count the number of times that people sin against you. You just keep forgiving. He could have easily just have said, no, not seven times, Peter, a million times. And the whole point would be, You're not trying to count the number of times. Besides that, uh, you know, uh, uh, what Jesus said, he really shows something that's important for us to know, not just for us, but about God, because he didn't just say uh, 70 times seven. He says, he didn't just say forgive 490 times, but he said, if somebody sins against you seven times in a day, seven times in a day, so we're not talking about spread out over a few weeks or months. or We're talking about in one day, this person comes seven times and, and, and does something sinful against you. And he says in seven times in a day, they come and ask for forgiveness. Now, I'm telling you, probably by about the third time, I don't believe them. You know, you know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm thinking their, their uh, apology is not sincere. But by the seventh time, Jesus is still saying... You should should forgive him. You should forgive him in a day. Now, why would he say in a day? Here's the thing. At first, you hear that and you think, I have to forgive that much? And we get discouraged. But then when you begin to think it through, you realize, wait a minute. God forgives that much? And we're encouraged because God's not going to ask us to do something that he's not going to do right? Does it make sense? This, this is God's incredible forgiveness towards me and it just blows my mind. It, and it calls me to an incredible level of grace and forgiveness towards others. And it's, it's just a really beautiful thing. But God knew Israel and he first called them uh, when he first called them, he, he knew about their apostasy. He knew about all the backsliding that was coming. He knew about all the idol worship that was down the road. He even predicted it with the pro- prophets. Moses uh, talked about how they would backslide Joshua. You remember the passage, famous passage, where he says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And he says, choose you this day. And the Israel says, "says you'll serve the Lord, we will too. And And Joshua, he's like, no, you won't. No, you won't. You can't even serve God. You are so wicked. And he just sort of reams them out in the book of Joshua. But, but the prophets talk about the apostasy of Israel. And yet after the parts that they talk about Israel's apostasy, after they talk about Israel's backsliding, the prophets always talk about Israel being restored. They write over and over and over again about Israel backsliding and, and falling down. And yet being picked back up and brought back in. And that's greatly encouraging to my heart because it's about God's love for Israel, but it's also an illustration to show me God's love for me. But let's let's read on. Verse 2. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and destroyed your altars. I alone, alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is the divine reply to him? Now, this is God speaking. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now, I want to read the passage from the Old Testament that he's quoting here. So, so turn back to 1 Kings 19 uh, so that we can sort of familiarize ourselves. I think we're familiar, but I want to remind uh, I want us to remind ourselves about the details because there's a lot of beautiful stuff here. But note, notice what it said here in, in Romans 12, 2. It says that Elijah was pleading with God against Israel. So, so it's describing what Elijah's doing. He's saying, God, I want you to strike Israel. I want you to come against Israel, Lord. And, and he's asking God to deal with these people. Why? Because they have rejected God, they have rejected uh, him. They've rejected Elijah, and now they're trying to kill him. Now, so let's refresh our memory on this. First Kings 19.1 is where, where we're going to start. But uh, but let me just set the scene for you because this takes place after the, the Mount Carmel uh, incident where Elijah has a showdown with the prophets of Baal. You know, it's like the old west shootout, only you know with prayers, I guess. You know, I don't know. But uh, but but with all the false prophets of Baal. And, and one prophet of God, Elijah. And he comes and says, let's see which God is the true God. If Baal is real, then let him prove himself. And Elijah said, if God is real, then he will prove himself. So, and so they have the showdown, right? And so they, they build the altars and they're going to offer the, upon which they're going to offer the sacrifices. And they say, whichever God answers with fire, that God will be God. In other words, we're not going to light the fire. Uh, we didn't start the fire. They just started going through my head. <laughs> so that, that was the prophets of Baal and Elijah singing that song. So they, they said, they said we, won't, we won't start the fire. The real God has to light the fire himself. So, so the prophets of Baal go first. And they, they stack up all the wood and they prepare the, the sacrifice And then they start chanting and doing all their prayer things. They start doing their weird rituals and they start cutting themselves, doing all these things they think they have to do to get their God's attention. And and eventually, Elijah actually mocks them. You know, he, he literally says, and this comes out in some translations, but not in others. But literally, the literal translation, he says, at one point in time, he says, maybe your God's in the bathroom and can't hear you. He says, maybe your God's sitting on the toilet. That's why he can't answer. And and he's, he's making fun of them. I mean, it's really interesting, isn't it? But 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 I want you to realize that that's that's for Elijah. This is not just like this is not childish mockery. It's not that's not what that's about. Because he has to put the foolishness of this idolatry on display in front of Israel. He has to help them see how foolish it really is. That's why he does the mocking. It's actually very important. You know, and we need need to know sometimes it's important to tear down false ideas, even though it might offend some people. How many of you think that maybe the people who worship Baal might have been a little offended what Elijah was doing? You know, but but he had to break down the foolishness of the idea Uh, for their sake. You need to break down this destructive idea. So Elijah does this. So the prophets of Baal, they go on for hours and hours and hours and hours and nothing happens. Then Elijah's turn comes and he is so bold in his faith and is trusting God's power and not not only believing that God could answer, but believing that God will answer. And and he says to them, you all know the story. He says to them, dig a ditch around the sacrifice and add water, lots of water, lots and lots of water. So they have the wood stacked up and they 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 have the sacrifice laying on the altar and they 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 just pour water buckets and buckets of water on this thing and they soak the whole thing and and the the ditch around it is all filled up and and elijah just prays he doesn't cut himself he doesn't chant he he doesn't have 30 worship songs first to try to get everything you know the emotions all worked up in people he just prays and god answers with fire from heaven and burns up everything that's there and then and then elijah's like kill the false prophets right? You know, God has proven himself. We know who God is. Kill the false prophets. And Elijah's like, here's the deal. These these false prophets have been deceiving you and causing you harm. Now they must die. die. So slay the prophets. And and now we're going to read 1 Kings 19 from the perspective of, I want you to think of it from from this perspective as we read it. What is it like for Elijah to go through this? Have Have you ever read this thinking, how did it feel for Elijah? He's up on Mount Carmel. He had this this mountaintop experience. The false prophets have been revealed for who they are. God's glory has been shown to Israel. And and, and I can't help but think that Elijah, after all of this, this powerful moment, I can't help but think that Elijah is thinking to himself, now they will follow God. Right? Right? I could be wrong, but I'm guessing that's his attitude. That's what I would be thinking. I'd be like, God, you showed yourself to all the people. You proved yourself in front of all those false prophets. Now they will follow you. Now Israel's going to be revived, and they're going to turn their hearts back to you, God. So, So they slay the prophets. Elijah leaves the mountain. Here's what happened next. 1 Kings 19, verse 1. And Ahab, now he was the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. They had split in two. The northern kingdom was called Israel. The southern kingdom was called Judah. And by the way, the northern kingdom did not have a single good king at all throughout their entire history. It's really, really pitiful. But it says, And Ahab told Jezebel, that's Ahab's wife, who who inspired all of this worship of Baal. And Ahab told Jezebel, all that Elijah had done and how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger, some messenger to Isaiah, or excuse me, to Elijah saying, We will repent and we will turn to God. No, that's not what he said. That's not it at all. The message said, said, Let the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. He gets a death threat. He, he, from the queen of Israel to whom King Ahab is bowing down because she's really running Israel, not her husband at this point. So, so here's the royal response to all of these events. It's not revival, it's not repentance, but death threats. So what does Elijah do? Verse 3, when he saw that she was serious, he arose and ran for his life to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, And left his servant there. Okay, so remember, the nation of Israel had been split by this point in time. And Israel's the northern kingdom. And Judah's the southern kingdom. And Israel is the kingdom where, where Ahab and Jezebel have their power and authority. And she's like, I'm going to kill you. And so Elijah goes down to Judah, to another kingdom, trying to get away from Jezebel, trying to get out of her reach, out of her authority. He's just running for his life. And and, and, and I mean, here he was thinking that Israel was going to be restored, that Israel Israel would be brought back to God. And instead, what happens is they are ultimately solidified in their apostasy and rebellion. It's just tragic. Verse four, but he went a day's journey into the wilderness and came out, excuse me, came and sat down under a juniper tree and asked that he might die, saying, it is enough. I've had enough, he says. Now, O Lord, take my life, for I'm not better than my father's. I want you to notice something. He did not take his life. He may have had those ideas, but he didn't think he had the right to take his own life. However, he did pray Lord, I wish you'd just take me home. Just kill me already. I just want to be done with life. Elijah goes from this mountaintop experience, God's glory revealed, all of this powerful stuff. But because of the response of the people, maybe because of disappointment, maybe just the struggles of of ministry. I mean, you talk about a hard ministry. He, He just wants to be dead. He says I, "I just want to be gone I'm tired of these battles lord lord it's it's enough. just take my life and again he he doesn't talk about taking his own life, but he just wishes that God would do that. Elijah is experiencing massive discouragement and depression he he says that he's no better than his fathers and i I think he's referring to the prophets who came before him who who prophesied to Israel and tried to get Israel to turn back to God, but they failed too. You know, I, I know Elijah, I, I, I don't know, I bet I imagine Elijah is a lot, a lot like uh, most of us is in the ministry. When we're young, we go into ministry and Elijah was probably like us. He's like, man, there'll be revival when I finish this thing. You know, I'm going to travel around and tell people a message that I have and Israel's going to come back to God. Nope. Nope. You know, the stress of a ministry where people don't respond is a heavy burden to bear. The stress is, is tremendous when you love people and you want to minister to them and you want to help them find God's will, but it just doesn't work out. There's This creates great anguish in your heart. I've been there. I've seen that. So we read on in verse 5. It says, As he lay and slept under the juniper tree, an angel touched him, and he said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and there was... A cake baked on, the, on coals and a jar of water at his head. And he ate and drank and then lay down again. I mean, he's depressed. He's just sleeping all day. I don't want to get up. I, I don't want to do anything. And some angel comes along and says, here's some food and water. And he eats it and he goes back to sleep. Sure seems to me like he's really battling depression here. Verse 7. The angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, arise and eat because the journey is too great for you. What you have coming up is too great for you. Now, this may be, the, may be the key to this passage. What you have coming up is too great for you. You're not ready for it. You, you're not up to the task anymore at this point. You, you, you want to die. You want these bad things to happen to yourself. And then, then that attitude will turn towards Israel in a second. Verse 8, He arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. He came to a cave and camped there, and the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, so, so God says to Elijah, why are you here, Elijah? Can I tell you this, just as a side note, when God asks questions, it's not because he needs to find the answers. He asks questions to get us to find the answers. To show us something. He says, why are you here, Elijah. Verse 10, and he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, Lord of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone, that's that's important there, alone, I alone am left and they seek to take my life. He says, God, look at me. I love you. I've been serving you. I've been faithful to you. Those people, they've rebelled against you. They rebelled against your prophets and now they want to kill me. And I'm here alone. I'm alone. I'm like the only one left on earth that loves God. That's That's how Elijah felt. I'm the only faithful person around. Sometimes we feel that way. I'm the only faithful person around. Everybody else is just backslidden. They're all fake Christians. It's just me. That's how I felt. Verse 11. He said, now this is God speaking. He said, Go and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind split the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake came. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire came, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood in the entrance to the cave. And a voice came to him and said, Why are you here, Elijah? It's the same question that God asked before. Why are you here, Elijah? I can't help but think that God is shaking Elijah up, right? Why are you here, Elijah? And he cries about all of his problems, then God sends winds and earthquakes and fire, and then a a quiet, still, small voice, and he just gets his attention. And then he's like, why are you here, Elijah? Verse 14, and he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, Lord of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword, and I alone, alone am left, and they seek to take my life. It's exact, it's the very same five complaints that he previously mentioned. The Lord said to him, Now look at what happens to Elijah now. Go return on the road through the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, anoint Haziel to be king over Aram. and you shall anoint Jehu, the, king, the son of Nimshi, to be king over Israel, and you shall anoint Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel Meholah, to be prophet in your place. In your place. It says, he who escapes the sword of Haziel will be killed by Jehu, and he who escapes the sword of Jehu will be killed by Elisha. Now, here's what I think is happening. Right after all of this, Elijah gets taken up into heaven. We know that, and we look at that story, and we think it's a glorious thing. Rightfully so, because it is a glorious thing, but what caused it is sad. Elijah is overwhelmed with his responsibilities he's overwhelmed with discouragement he just wants to give up and quit he can't see what's really happening and he thinks that things are darker than they really are so he says to God I just want out there's no hope I'm angry I'm upset I wish you would just deal with those people just take me home God and God says anoint your replacement." You're, you're done. You have these few tasks to do and then you're done. Anoint your replacement. And Elisha is Elijah's replacement. So God says, go do these last tasks and your ministry is over. And that just kind of makes me go, whoa. Then God tells Elijah the truth of the situation that he just can't see. Verse 18. Still, I have preserved 7,000 men in Israel for myself all of whose knees have not bowed to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. Elijah, there are 7,000 people just like you who love me. In Israel, in the apostate northern kingdom, where you've been all over the place for years preaching and ministering, you may think that they're not there, but I'm telling you that they are there. Elijah goes and fulfills his task and he gets taken up. I mean, this is pretty intense stuff. You can go back to Romans 11. According to Romans 11, it says that Elijah pleads with God against Israel. Lord, take them out. And the divine response was, guess what? You want me to say, off with their heads. And God could have said that, right? He could have judged Israel. He could have said, I'm done with you. He could have wiped them off the face of the earth. How many times could God have, have had a reason to destroy Israel? Or, or, for, or me, for that matter. Or you, for that matter. How many times could that have happened? However, that's not his heart toward us, and that's not his heart towards Israel. Instead, what does God do? God mentions a remnant whom he has preserved because God is working. Even in the midst of the greatest apostasy in the history of Israel, God is still working with people who are faithful to him. In the darkest times there are still lights shining. I think Jeremiah went through some similar things. Turn to Jeremiah 12. Let's look at what God said to Jeremiah when he had a similar situation. Hopefully it'll speak to our uh, our hearts today because I think we need to hear this. And if if you don't need to hear it now, I want you to write it down because you'll need to remember it later because it's it's just a matter of time until you face your own intense discouragement in life. It's just a matter of time. I'm not here to be a prophet of doom. I'm just telling you that's the way of, of life. That's the way it is living in a broken world when you're a child of God because the world is broken and you're trying to. like Elijah trying to tell them the truth and they don't respond so many times. Or life is just hard. and You face that intense disillusionment and discouragement and depression like, I, like Elijah. But Jeremiah chapter 12 beginning in verse 1 it says this. Righteous are you, O Lord, that I plead with you. Indeed, let me talk with you about matters of justice. So he's real careful here at the beginning. He said, I'm going to to complain to you, God, but I'm acknowledging that you are righteous. I know I'm wrong, but let me tell you how I feel. And so it's a very human moment. God, you are righteous. I'm not at all all impugning your, your goodness, but just let me talk to you about this issue through which I'm going. Let me talk to you about justice, what is right, what is wrong. And so he just puts it out there. Let me talk with you about your judgments. He goes on and he says, why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why are all those happy who deal very treacherously? You have planted them. Indeed, they have taken root. They grow. Indeed, they bring forth fruit. You are near in their mouth, but far from their mind. He's saying they're false believers and they say the name of God, but their lives are wicked and and you allow this, God. And he says it's almost as if you are blessing them. What's up, God? Verse three. But you, O Lord, know me. You've seen me and tested my heart toward you. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and prepare them for the day of slaughter. Can you imagine praying like this today? You know, we're like, you know, can, can you imagine if you went to church on Sunday and you're, and you, and you know, I'm up here in the pulpit as your pastor. And I start praying, I start praying, God, this nation has turned its back on you. Just kill them all. We might make the news. I'm not sure. But, uh, but that's, that That was, he was just telling God, this is how I feel. I'm so discouraged i'm so disgusted by everything that's going on verse 4 how long shall the land mourn and the herbs of the field wither for the of every field wither for the wickedness of those who dwell in it the beasts and the birds have been snatched away because they said he will not see our latter end they're like There will be no real judgment for our sins. That's never going to happen. That's what what he's saying, that the the sinners are saying. And then in verse 5, here's God's response to Jeremiah, and it just blows me away. It's not what you'd expect. He doesn't even explain to Jeremiah everything that's going on. He just says this. If you have run with the footmen and they have wearied you, then how can you contend with the horses? He says, Jeremiah, you, you think this is hard? Wait till you see what comes next. What? You you think this is tough? You think the struggles and the battles you're going through now are hard? I'm telling you, there are greater trials coming your way, and you need to learn to deal with trials. That's intense. Jeremiah, you've been running a foot race with other footmen Later you'll be running against horses. If you can't handle this now how will you handle the next trial which is greater? How will you deal with the next thing that's coming your way, Jeremiah? He says, I'm calling you to a glorious purpose, but the glorious purpose is you reaching out to awaken people with God's truth and love and it's not going to be that easy. Wow. Then he finishes the last part of that verse. He says, and if in the land of peace in which you trusted, you, they wearied you, then how will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? Same same message. It's very picturesque language, but he's saying, you thought this was going to be easygoing and you can't handle it. But I'm telling you, this is the easy part. What's coming next will be harder. Now, Jeremiah, though, actually does continue his story is a tough story his ministry is a tough ministry his life is a hard life you read the you read the story there's a reason why jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet and he it's that way until he goes to be with the lord but but he went to a greater kingdom and an eternal glory so it was more than worth it for him in the long run but but we learn something through elijah and through jeremiah i think we, we, we learn that each of us will face intense discouragement at some point in life. Every one of us. It's going to happen at some point or another, and sometimes, rather than answering our complaints, God's answer to us is, you need to trust me. I'm not going to fix the situation. You need to trust me. You need to buck up spiritually and put your faith and your trust in me because this is what you're here for. You know, sometimes we... We look at other people in our lives and we put them up on a pedestal and we say, oh, they're so spiritual. They love God so much. And, and we think to ourselves, well, that person can handle this. Th- that person can handle anything. But God looks at you and he, he says, with my strength in you, you are that person. With, he, he says, with my power in you, with, with my help in you, you're that person. Now, I'm not saying it will, that it's easy, but I am saying this is biblical. There's something very powerfully true about this stuff. God has preserved people. You know, there are times when we look around in our lives and in our culture like Elijah, and we think, everyone hates you, God. Everyone has rejected you, Lord. The world is, we think the world is getting so dark. But in that moment, I want you to remember this. As dark as, as, as you think the world is right now, you don't know what God is doing in different places. You don't know. You're like Elijah. He didn't know that God had 7,000 others. You, you don't know about the goodness that is happening. Like, like if, What if God arranged a, a meeting between you and everyone in the world that got saved in the last 24 hours? You know, all around the world, everybody that gave their life to Jesus in the last 24 hours, and you got to sit down with them, and you got to see uh, all of these people that got saved, and, and God goes, look at what I did in the last 24 hours and that you didn't even know about. But you were freaking out because you watched the news. We just don't know what God's doing. We're like Elijah we get so focused on the discouragement and we think, I'm alone. Nobody's ever gone through this. Nobody knows what it's like. But God is saying, man, I'm at work in ways that you'll never see. There's 7,000, Elijah. And if you preserve those 7,000 who had not bowed to a false God during Israel's great apostasy, is not God working today? And I don't want to be foolishly optimistic, and I don't want to be foolishly pessimistic as a believer. If, if God was, the truth is, if God was no longer doing anything in this world, the world would be over. God is at work, God is doing glorious things, but we sometimes don't see it, and because we don't see it, it discourages us. Things aren't as extreme as we think they are when we look at the negative sides of this world. You know, every generation thinks that things are worse than they've ever been before. Every generation says that. Everybody says, you know, every decade or two, uh, you know, it says the same thing. But maybe it's just that we're more aware of things as we get older and more alert to issues. But, you know, maybe things aren't necessarily worse than they were before Because, you know, I'm thinking that in the days before the flood, things were probably even worse than they are now. If it it was so bad that God had to destroy all of humanity. So don't quit. Don't think it's over. Stay hopeful. Don't don't be discouraged. If you are discouraged, take your complaint, complaint to the Lord and let his word guide and direct you in it. You know, I want, I want to learn the lesson from Elijah. And here's the lesson I want to learn. I don't want to be disqualified from what God might do through my life because I get too easily discouraged. Because I think things are darker than they really are. And because I let burden things burden me in the wrong way. I, I want to get to, to, to continue to serve Jesus more. So, so this means being able to say, you know what? I need to not believe my own news reports that are running through my head about the reality that I think I see around me. And I need to trust that God is working whether I see it or not. Elijah never saw it. I think there's another lesson in there. It's a little it's almost on the opposite side of it. If, if 7,000 had not bowed, their knee to a false God, which is, which is a good number of people, especially when you consider the size of the population of Israel back then. But that also means that a large number had bowed their knee. And what, what we need to learn, we learn this from the fact that a, that a minority of the Jews had accepted Christ, and that a, but a majority had not. What We, we learn that, that we cannot determine truth by testing the winds the, of the passing whims and decisions of humanity uh, and culture around us, we we can't be like, oh, you know, the wind is blowing. Uh, many churches are now not teaching that homosexuality is a sin. Okay, I'm, I'm down with that because I don't want to be looked down looked at as a bigot. I don't want to be seen as rude or cruel or whatever. Or we say, oh, the the wind is blowing. Hell has become unpopular, so we're we're no longer going to teach on that issue or or judgment or wrath or Jesus being the only way or any of these other solid biblical truths. Wh- when the wind blows. I want to be one of the few that has not bowed the knee to those things. And that's a good encouragement for us. We we need to be willing to go against the flow, even when it's uncomfortable. Let's continue. We'll, we'll get a little further tonight. But verse 5, um, Paul takes the illustration of Elijah and applies it to his day. It says this, So then, at this present moment, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. So he's tying it here. He's saying, that in Elijah's day, even though he didn't see it, there was a remnant it was there was a minority that were actually hearing from God and doing it right. they were getting it. They were they were serving God. and he's applying to his day and he's saying that the same thing today and, and that, they, that there is a remnant according to the election of grace, not, not because they deserve it but because they are called by mercy and great grace and love uh, and, and there was a remnant of Jewish believers in Jesus at the time of paul now there are two messages here the message to the jew is to be mindful of the fact that the hebrew bible speaks of this remnant of faithful israel so so they they should not be saying well a lot of jews don't accept jesus so i won't either rather knowing the history of israel And knowing how very often it was only a small minority, it was the remnant that was actually faithful, they should be be going, well, a lot of Jews didn't accept Jeremiah or Elijah or Isaiah or Ezekiel or any of those guys. So let me look at Jesus honestly and consider whether or not he is truly the Messiah. That's his point. The, The message to the Jew is a reminder that the faithful among Israel have been the remnant before. However, the message to the Gentiles is this, don't discount the Jewish people. There was a remnant in Paul's time, and there's still a remnant today, although it's bigger today than it was in Paul's time. You know, as of a few years ago, the latest I I could find, the estimates that I I read that, that were... Uh, that the, there are about 350,000 Messianic Jews or Jews who believe in Jesus. Now, honestly, those numbers are very tough to come by because there are a lot of Jews who who, who do believe in Jesus. They realize that they'll be ostracized at times of a family members. So there, there's a lot of nervousness about how open to be with that sort of thing. So it's hard to really get accurate numbers. Uh, but, but uh, you know, there, there are some Jewish people who have been treated as if they were not Jews, like like if you said you believe in in the teachings of Buddha and you're a, you're a Jew, they'd say, well, you're still a Jew. And if you're a Hindu and you're a Jew, you can still be a Jew. But if you say I'm I'm a follower of Christ, I'm a Christian, and you're a Jew, well, now you're not a Jew anymore. And so it's, it, there is a certain level of persecution towards Jewish believers in that sense. Um, but but the truth is, there are more Jews following Jesus today than there were in Paul's time. So it would be a denial of reality to say Israel has been rejected by God and God is completely done with them because reality tells us there are thousands of Jews who serve him today. And not only would it be a denial of reality, but also would be just plainly unbiblical because that's what Paul is, the point he's trying to make here. The fact is that God is still working his glorious work in Israel. And that reminds us of his love and faithfulness and mercy toward us as well. Verse 6, it says, and if by grace, if if this calling, this this choosing by God is is by grace, and if by grace, then it is no longer by works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. But if it is by works, then it is no longer by grace. Otherwise, work would no longer be work. This is the last scripture we're going to deal with tonight. This this verse is really actually very often neglected. I I love verse 6. I know it's like a dictionary verse. Be, it's like an entry in the dictionary because it says here's what grace means here's what works means and here's what it doesn't mean and this is what this one doesn't mean so it's it's defining terms but, but it's beautiful and it's important but it's often ne- neglected but i would i would beg every jehovah's witness every mormon every uh catholic anybody else who believes in grace plus works for salvation I would beg them to study verse 6 of chapter 11 of Romans because it completely destroys those theologies. They are not possible. That theology to say it's grace plus works is not possible in light of this verse because it says here, if it's by grace, then it's no longer by works. And if it's by works, then it's no longer by grace. You know, if you're going to say that any of it is works, then, you're gonna, then you have to say that none of it is by grace. And if you're going to say any of it is grace, then you have to say that none of it is grace. That's, that's what he's saying here. If salvation is of grace, then it is not of works. This is what's called a dichotomy or, or a separation of two options. There are only two choices here in this, in this scenario. You are saved by grace or you're saved by works. And what many try to do, really what all false gospels, and I'm not saying every false religion because there's a lot of weird things out there, but I'm talking about any religion that claims to be true to the Bible, if it's a false gospel, what they all try to do is that they try to combine the two into into some sort of mixture. So so when we encounter a Jehovah's Witness and and, and you say, well, I believe that we're saved by grace, and they say, we agree. You'd be like, but, but, but wait, no, wait, wait a minute. You know, or, or you talk to a Mormon and you say, I believe that we're saved by grace. And they say, absolutely, we agree. You, you talk to even a Catholic person and they, they say, and you, and, you, they say I and you say, I believe that we are saved by grace. And, and, and they say, we do too. And, and you just want to say, wait a minute, you, you can't say that because if you say grace, then, if, then what you mean is that it's not works at all. And then they go, well, I'm not saying not works. I'm just saying grace and works. However, the Bible is saying here, you cannot say that. That just, That's not allowed. You cannot have grace plus works for salvation. It's either grace or works. It's one or the other, not both. Here's a way to summarize, summarize this when you're sharing with people and, and you get into that confusing moment where, where they're like, you know, you're like, wait a minute, you, you, you can't say it's both grace and works. You know, you can't say, well, you're saved by grace, but then you have to live this way. You have to do these things to actually make it to heaven. You can't say that uh, because uh, you can bring into Romans eleven six and say, if it's by grace, it's no longer of works. If it's by works, it's no longer of grace. These things don't get, go together. You, you, you can't combine them. I've heard it said like this. Everyone, every false gospel believes in the necessity of grace all false gospels will teach you that you need some version of grace that grace is necessary however they don't believe in the sufficiency of grace in other words they don't believe grace is enough just grace not enough you have to have you have to do some stuff too you know, whether it's you have to have so many converts, you got to reach these people, you got to do this, you got to do that. So you're saved by grace, but you, you have to do these things, too. Well, according to Romans eleven six, 6, Paul would say, well, if you have to have grace and do stuff, then, then that's not grace. They view grace, they, they I'll put it this way, they view grace as a discount on salvation, not free salvation. Grace is viewed like it's a coupon, like, like, oh, Jesus, I'm just going to bring all my good works to you and I'm bringing them all to you and it's not quite enough, but I got my coupon. You know, I've got my, so I'll, I'll have enough to buy salvation by the time I get my grace and my works together, I get a discount, I got grace, so here's my works and now I'm saved and that's ultimately what they're saying. However, grace is an utterly free gift of God. Utterly free. I do not offer anything for my salvation. So grace equals not works. And works equals not grace. It's a true dichotomy. You have to pick one or the other. The Bible is defining its terms here. And you can't argue with this and be biblical at the same time. Saved by grace means your works are not involved in your salvation at all. Now works are important. But our works are the response to God's salvation. We do good works because we have been saved, not in order to get saved. Grace is not a discount on salvation. It means that salvation is utterly free. So, so why is Paul pointing this out? How does it relate to what he's saying about the Jewish people? He, he's saying that God has chosen to do a work in the Jewish people and He's chosen to do this work by grace. So just as your salvation is secure in grace, so God's future promises to Israel are secured by grace. These are promises. You know, that there are promises in, uh, made by God to Israel that are not conditional. Did you know that? Like where he says to Abraham, here's what I'm going to do through you. Period. I'm just going to do it by grace. You didn't he didn't do anything to get those promises. God but there are promises, many promises in the Bible that are conditional where God says if you do this, I will do this. But God's unconditional promises made to Israel are secure. By grace. So we'll talk more about that next week. Next week, we're going to try to build a picture of what what God's future plans are for Israel as a nation because we believe that God is not done with them yet. And I think that's encouraging. and It should be encouraging to all of us because when I see God's love and patience and and long suffering with Israel, I know He has the same kind of patience toward us. And I don't know about you, but I I need it. I need it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're, we're grateful for your, your love and grace. We thank you, Lord, that you are you're so faithful to the people of Israel and, and you're, you're calling them uh, for them as a as a people, even though it might be working through a remnant, is still intact. There, there is a future hope for them, and, and we delight in that. Our prayer for us tonight, God, as we as we close is this: Lord, help us to have endurance. Help us to have endurance. Help us to not see things as darker than they really are, that, that we wouldn't process things through our limited vision, but that we would have a hopeful attitude in, in that we don't see everything. We know that you you, you say you you cause all things to work together for our good, but Lord, help us to believe that that's true. And God, I pray for encouragement for, for each of us, Lord. I pray that you would encourage everyone here in this building and everyone who's watching on the live stream, who, who's been facing difficulties and problems and they're dealing with discouragement or depression, God, see our weakness and meet us where we are. Be our refuge. Give, give us more hope so that we can continue serving you so that we don't get disqualified from those future opportunities to glorify, glorify Christ in this world. Just, just encourage your people, God. In the strong name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.